of the reasons technology has wrapped its tentacles around our lives is because we long for an escape from the hard things. Anyone else long, from, long for escape from the hard things? I do. I and you often use technology, which is not bad in itself, to disassociate from reality. Christian counselor Jay Stringer says that this is something that most of us have been doing since childhood. He says, quote, Think about the hours of TV, video games, and internet you consumed growing up. For many individuals, the distractions of technology were more consistent than a deep, loving engagement with meaningful relationships, end quote. This was true for me. For me, it was locking myself in my room to play my Sega Genesis. On the weekends, I would visit my dad, watching endless amounts of sports at my mom's house, disassociating from reality. Disassociation, however we do it, seduces us out of the present, painful moments, and promises us a world of carefree distraction. One of the reasons, I think that happens for many reasons, one of the reasons we're so easily seduced is because the seeming futility of our lives is too much to bear. Let me say that again because this is key to where we're going today. One of the reasons disassociation so easily seduces us is because the seeming, seeming, keyword, seeming futility of our lives is too much to bear. What do I mean? I mean that we all sense that our lives are useless, meaningless, futile. And so we, keep, we seek to escape the painful feelings of futility however we can. This isn't surprising to us when we remember that God cursed the ground after Adam and Eve sinned against Him. We'll get there in a few months. Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> God curses the ground after sin comes into the world. This curse means that our lives will be marked with futility. There will be pain and heartache and trial and trouble in everything we attempt. I had the word almost in my manuscript and I took that out because I just don't think that's true. I think everything we attempt has some measure of pain, toil, trial, and trouble. Is that fair? Everything we attempt is touched by the curse of sin. We work hard at our jobs, but we don't see results. We get our education, but then we don't get the job that we want. We pursue a romantic relationship, but come up empty-handed. We do everything we know to shepherd our children, and they still rebel. We pray and share the gospel, and yet don't see much fruit. 
We make tremendous effort to change our lives, but end up only more discouraged. Futility marks our lives in in many cases at many times. It's too much to bear. And so we move into disassociation, uh, checking out from reality, sometimes with technology, sometimes with some other means, in order to escape the pain and the toil and the trouble. I wonder, is this you? Is any of what I've said so far touch a part of your life or your heart? Have you resigned yourself Maybe you've gone this far. You've actually resigned yourself to just live a hollow existence because the losses keep piling up. Maybe it's more hit and miss for you. Do you ever at school or at work just feel like you're beating the air? You're exerting tremendous influence, or excuse me, effort. And coming up empty. Do you ever wonder why you're even doing the things you do? Whether your life has any meaning at all, maybe you've struggled with suicidal ideation. You're not alone. In a world marked with the curse of sin, which means futility, suicidal ideation is far more prevalent than you probably realize. And many of you have had it. I've had it. Don't ever believe the lie that you're alone. But there's good news. That's a pretty bleak p- picture, and I think it, it, everything I said is true. It's bleak. I think it's true. But that's not the end of the story. There is good news for us in this predicament, this futile life that we're struggling through. God tells us, in His Word, that our lives are inherently purposeful, not purposeless. That He created us to fulfill specific and wonderful purposes on the earth. You've undoubtedly heard, God has a great plan for your life. And then you've left the conversation thinking, I have no idea what that means. Can someone just help me with today? But God does indeed have a plan for your life, for every human life. We are, however, unclear about what that actually means. The Bible says a lot of things that that could be inserted here. I'm going to just touch on one of them that confronts us in Genesis chapter 1. So we're doing the last of, I think, seven or eight sermons in Genesis chapter 1. We come to the end of the first chapter of the Bible We're going to look at this text again. We've done lots of flybys over this text over the last few weeks. We're going to look at it one more time and see how God tells us what He tells us about the plan, His plan for our lives. That God has a beautiful design for our lives, a beautiful design for His image bearers, man and woman. Genesis 1, 26-31, we learn that God created us for a specific purpose, gave us a specific promise, and then spoke a specific pronouncement over us. 
in these verses. We're going to see three things. If you're a note taker, here are the three points. Here's where we're headed. Here's our outline. Number one, God's plan, verses 26 through 28. God's plan, verses 26 through 28. Number two, God's provision, 29 through 30. God's provision, 29 through 30. And then thirdly, God's pronouncement, verse 31. So God's plan, God's provision, then God's pronouncement. Here's the main point of the message before we get into the weeds of it. The main point, what, what I want to say from this text to you, is that your life is not meaningless because God created you with a very specific purpose, giving you work to do on His behalf and with His help. That's where we're going. Your life is not meaningless despite all the pain of futility, Despite all the, the thorns and the thistles and the trouble and the toil, despite all of that, God's plan remains. God has created you, you, not some generic person in the world, you, brother, sister, you, friend. God created you for a specific purpose. And what I'm going to try to say that that is this morning is that you have work to do on His behalf and with His help. You have work to do. Let's get into the specifics. Number one, God's plan, verses 26 through 28. These will be very familiar verses by now. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Number one, God's plan. We see in these verses that God made us in His image to rule His world for Him. He created one humanity and two genders who together reflect His righteous rule over the world and who together are meant to relate to Him as sons and daughters. We, all of us, were made to rule for God while we relate to God. That's verses 26 and 27. We've covered that terrain already. But then we come again to verse 28. God blesses His image bearers and speaks to them giving them specific instructions on what they're made to do. Remember, again, God hasn't spoken to any other aspect or part of creation, but He speaks to man and woman. God talks. God has spoken to you about the purpose of your life. It's verse 28. He blesses you. Then He says to you, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. So, what's our job? Well, we're to multiply ourselves and subdue the earth. Have dominion over the earth. This is called, often called, the creation mandate. The creation mandate. Adam and Eve were commanded by God to subdue the earth and fill the earth. This is God's plan for them 
and all humans who come after them. This is God's will for our lives. This is the first great commission, the first mission God gives to his people. Fill the earth and subdue the earth. Multiply in the earth and have dominion over the earth. This is a mandate for all humans, not just for Adam and Eve. This is a command, not a suggestion. This is God opening his mouth and telling us exactly what he wants us to do in the world. But what exactly does it mean? I'm still probably not being super helpful yet. I hope this next section will make things more clear. So what does this mean, this whole creation mandate in verse 28? Well, we talked a few weeks ago about the multiply and fill the earth part. So part of what it means is that in marriage we should have kids. One of the basic foundational purposes of marriage is child rearing. That was a few weeks ago. Today I want to look at the subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth part. We talked a few weeks ago also about ruling the animals. So I'm not going to cover that terrain again. Again, we're going to zero strictly in on this idea of subduing the earth. What does God mean? Subdue the earth. Have dominion over all the earth. What does that mean? What exactly is God telling us to do? Well, first, we need to understand that the Garden of Eden was only a small part of the created world. Look in chapter 2, verse 8. Just one page over, perhaps. Chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the Garden of Eden didn't cover the entire earth. It was a small part of the created world. So back to chapter 1, verse 28. Why does God tell Adam and Eve, whom he's going to put in the Garden of Eden, why does he tell them to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over all the earth if they're only going to be in a garden? Why does God tell them to do something everywhere but then only put them in one place? Well, God's design is that mankind will start their work in the garden. This is verse 15 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God, Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So their work will start in the garden, but then, according to chapter 1, verse 28, it should eventually extend beyond the garden and move out into all the earth. But this begs the question, why would God only make part of the world a garden, put Adam and Eve there, and then tell them to fill and subdue the whole earth? Couldn't God just have made the whole world like Eden? Couldn't he have planted a garden over the entire face of the earth? Well, of course he could have, but he didn't. Why? Why would God do it this way? This is where we start to get, I hope, some clarity. God gives us the command to subdue the earth, puts our first father and first mother in a specific place so that they will start there and then eventually move from there and join him in his work of filling and forming the earth. God's plan was that Adam and Eve and all who would come after them will join him, will participate with him in forming and filling and cultivating the earth. Only God can create 
ex nihilo, or out of nothing. Adam and Eve can't go around just creating out of nothing. But they are called to join God in bringing order to the world, to form and fill the earth, just like God did in the six days of creation. So after the six days of creation, creation is both complete and incomplete. All of its spaces, days one through three, and populations, days four through six, are in place. But humanity is called to continue the work of bringing order to the world. Like God, we're called, they were called, we, we follow with this work of separating, setting limits, filling up, and subduing the spaces of the earth. Now, saying that the earth was incomplete doesn't mean that the earth was imperfect. Just because Adam and Eve are given a mandate to cultivate the earth doesn't mean that the earth was badly or poorly made or that God needed help finishing the job. Verse 31 says plainly that God saw everything He made and it was very good. That the world was very good doesn't mean that it was everything that it could be or everything that it would be. Remember, there will one day be a new heavens and a new earth. So the earth will one day be better than it is today. But by the end of day six, it was exactly what God wanted it to be at that moment. He didn't forget anything. He didn't get tired or lazy. He made exactly what he wanted to make. So again, why did he make this world that was very good but was still, in a sense, incomplete, a world outside of the garden that still needed forming and filling and subduing. Because, and I hope this is where you start to rethink everything you do starting tomorrow morning when you go to work or when you go to school. He wants you, friend, to join him in his work of forming and filling the earth. God wants us to participate with him in his work in the world. This means that, of course, God can speak anything into existence that he wants with a word. But he didn't do it that way. He gives us the privilege of joining him in his work. Can you imagine a king? Let's say there's a king who owns everything in the world. And it's all in a warehouse. It'd have to be a big warehouse. Just go with me on this. And they say, hey, I want you to come and take care of my stuff. It's not your stuff, it's their stuff, but they turn it over to you. Now, if they just put you in a security guard booth kind of at the front of the warehouse and said, hey, here's your taser, you know, good luck. You can't touch anything. You got to stay in the security guard booth. Just protect. Just look pretty, sit here. That would not be nearly as fun if the king who owned everything in the world in the warehouse came to you and said, hey, all this stuff is mine. You can't have it, but you can create with it. You can spread it. You can make stuff with it. You can steward it. You can multiply it. You can do pretty much anything you want to do with it. (laughs) Remembering that it's mine. I think you'd prefer the second option. What a privilege it is to manage God's wealth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But we were made, not hired, 
We were made to partner with God in his filling and forming work in the world. This means, as Augustine pointed out, that God made a world full of potential. God didn't create a static world, but a world bursting with possibility. This is why governments who seek to impede or even crush the entrepreneurial spirit of mankind will not prosper. Just study world history. Why? God made us. If I'm reading this text rightly, God made us to make something out of what he made. God made you, friend, to make something out of what he made. Can you imagine living in a static world where nothing ever changed? Nothing could change? Can you imagine how dark and boring such a world would be if everything and everyone was the same all the time? But that's not the world God made. God didn't make a static world. God made a world full of potential and possibility. And then he made a man and a woman. And he said, hey, guess what? You get to join me in forming and filling and creating and stewarding everything I made. And by the way, have fun. Enjoy yourself. I was tempted to give you a lot of other points on a theology of work. There's a sermon online called What is Work? If you want to get on our website and find that sermon, What is Work? What I'm saying today has massive implications that I don't have time to get into about the way you approach your work. And I don't care what your work is. You're like, I'm just a student. That's work, isn't it? They don't just give you a diploma, do they? You're like, John, I just... You know, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Praise the Lord. That's the hardest job in the room. Amen? Whatever your work is, is a partnership with God, almighty God, in forming and filling his earth. A world full of possibility. A world bursting with potential. So in the six days of creation, God began to cultivate his creation. Then he mandates that humans continue this work. We call this the creation mandate. Sometimes this is called the cultural mandate. Cultural mandate. The the Latin word cultura means the tilling of the land or care bestowed on plants. So to cultivate or to culture something means to enhance it, to help it to grow to help it develop and improve and flourish. This is where we get our word agriculture from, bringing order to the land, developing it for its own flourishing and for our good. We were made to cultivate nature. This means there shouldn't be a dichotomy between nature and culture. God made nature to be cultured or cultivated. Both are good and both are from God. We don't need to pick one over the other or say that one is better than the other. Pitting nature against culture can lead to the belief that everything natural is better than everything artificial. I chose to touch on this because these debates are happening in our culture and even in the church. But it's not fair or right or loving to say everything is 
Everything that's natural is inherently good, and everything that's artificial is inherently bad, or vice versa, to say everything artificial is inherently better than everything natural. The dichotomy is false. Nature, good. Culture, good. So whether we're talking holistic medical care versus traditional medicine, good. Talk it out with your spouse if you're married, with friends if you're single. Decide what's best for you. But don't walk around in self-righteousness assuming that you're doing it God's way because you're doing it this way or that way. We could apply this to food, you know, eating organically or eating McDonald's. (laughs) That's a pretty extreme example, but both can have their benefits. More on one side probably. The point is that all organic or all natural isn't necessarily inherently better than something that's quote-unquote artificial or something that's created or made. Both are here. Nature made by God, man and woman made by God and told by God to cultivate, to create, to take natural things and make something and do something. So if we have this dichotomy, if we put one against the other, it can lead to a disregard of the natural world in order to create the ultimate human environments where we're in complete control of our surroundings, untethered to any idea of a God-given goodness in nature or called to steward the natural world. Perhaps this is where we're headed with the metaverse. You laugh, but seriously... The Gospel Coalition has an excellent article on this a few weeks ago. How do we think about the metaverse? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go home and Google it. But again, Genesis 1 and 2 know of no dichotomy between the natural world and the cultural mandate. God made the world very good and He calls us to fill it and form it. One theologian, Christopher Watkins, says, Neither the dream of a return to nature nor that of a utopian techno future fits at all well with with the Genesis 1 and 2 accounts. So God began cultivating the earth. Then he made us to continue what he started. So neither nature nor culture is inherently bad, though both groan under the curse of sin. Nature is very good, and we're called to make something of it. Going camping... Living in the woods can be fun, can be a great way to be reminded of God's power and beauty in nature, but living in a tent in the woods may not be the most enjoyable way to live in the world. So God made some of us to take the raw materials of nature and build houses and apartments to live in, which also shows the power and beauty and wisdom of God. So again, pitting nature versus Technology or anything that's been made against each other is not doing justice to this text. Now let me address one more aspect of this. God's plan, as I've said, is that we join Him in forming and filling the earth. But how we do this is just as important that we do it. How we do it is just as important that we do it. The language of subduing and having dominion over the earth could lead one to think that we have permission to conquer creation however we want. 
to just use and abuse God's world because God told us to. That would be a misreading of the text. We need to remember that we rule the world on behalf of someone else. We represent God's rule so that we must rule in a way that reflects God's character. And as Christians, we take our cues from Jesus Christ. A Christian understanding of ruling the earth looks to Jesus and remembers that Jesus shows us what, excuse me, that the one who rules is the one who serves. We're called to serve not as slaves, but as agents of God to whom much is given and from whom much is expected. So the way we rule over the world says something about God. The way we rule should reveal God's character. And to put this, put some meat on these bones, this means that the way you live your life, the way you carry yourself at work, your demeanor at home or at school, says something, the way you go about your business, as it were, says something about God's rule in the world. I find it interesting that at the center of Israel's worship, unlike the other ancient Near Eastern cultures around them, there was no image. There was no image at the center of their worship. Do you remember what was at the center of their worship? Audience participation. What was at the center of Israel's worship? Louder. The temple? What was inside the temple? The ark. What was inside the ark? The Ten Commandments. At the center of Israel's worship was a box with a book. It's no accident that the Ten Commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, which was in the temple, and before that the tabernacle, which was the center of Israel's worship, meaning that God's character was meant to be imaged or embodied or revealed through the lives of people who've been shaped by it. Meaning that people in the world should see something of God when they look at us in our lives, the way we carry ourselves, the way we do our work in the world. The Bible shapes how we cultivate nature. It sets parameters gives us instruction, tells us that we're called to care for the world, not exploit the world, to steward the world, not waste the world. It shapes us into the kind of people who will rule God's world in God's way. These kinds of people, by the way, are most visibly seen in local churches. One scholar says the idea of the image of God in Genesis 1 and Jesus is not an idea which lives in a cosmological vacuum. It's an explicit call to form a new kind of community in which the members, after the manner of the gracious God, are attentive and calling each other to full being in fellowship. In other words, it's in local churches where we fully embrace and become what it means to be made in the image of God, where we're formed into a new kind of community, where we call one another to be who God made us to be. So as a church, we do this by practicing meaningful membership, by practicing church discipline. Every person who claims to follow Jesus should be following him with other Jesus followers and is in an accountable relationship with those Jesus followers. A Lone Ranger Christian not connected to a gospel preaching church is foreign to the Bible. 
God's character will be most seen in the world through local churches or gatherings of Christians who are increasingly looking like Jesus Christ. They're led by elders, taught and instructed and guided and corrected by elders who aren't perfect but are seeking to lead the people of God to image God in the world. So a healthy local church is where the world can see what imaging God really looks like. This is why we do membership the way we do. Because being a member of a local church is saying, hey, world, hey, unbelieving, fallen world, I'm following Jesus, and I'm not a Christian because I'm a member of this church, but these brothers and sisters are affirming that I am indeed a follower, and we together, together are looking more and more like Jesus Christ. May God increase churches like that in our area. May God make us a church like that. When God tells Adam and Eve to fill and form the earth, he's telling them to make culture. Last comment on this point. I promise you the second two points are way shorter. Last comment, culture. When we use the word culture, we often think of art, movies, music, or, you know, poetry or something. But that's not really the essence of culture. Culture is more than that, not less than that, but culture is any way that we subdue, enhance, or order the, cre- the creation. Any way that we create something with God's creation. To summarize what I've said, this is God's will for your life. You're like, man, John, I'm really struggling with that futility thing you talked about. What was it like 30 minutes ago? I'm really struggling with that. Man, I am too. I am too. But here's the good news. If you're a human, then God's plan for your life is to join God in forming and filling His world. To make culture. You may be thinking, well, John, I'm just a student. I'm barely getting through my undergrad. I'm dying in school. (laughs) You know, I'm just a this or I'm just to that. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm not making culture. Please don't believe that. That's a lie. If you do anything, work, school, retirement, recreation, whatever you do that brings order and enhancement to the world, shapes and fashions the world, fills or forms the world, you're obeying the creation mandate. So if you're a factory worker, mechanic, farmer, nurse, artist, firefighter, architect, engineer, Information technology specialist, code writer, chef, barista, writer, pastor, homemaker, doctor, city planner, student, or business owner. You're all doing the same thing. You're ordering and enhancing the world. Which means that there is no hierarchy amongst professions. Our culture has created an arbitrary ranking of professions, hasn't it? And we give into this all the time. This is why we always ask, what do you do? What do you do? Oh, well, you do this, so, and I do this, so I'm a little bit better than you, or I'm a little bit under you. All of that, what I'm saying, all of that is arbitrary. If you're joining God and forming and filling the earth, your work is valuable and God-given and meaningful. You're a culture maker. As long as your work isn't obviously sinful, it's equally dignified with every other type of work. Being a pastor 
isn't more valuable than being whatever you are. My work is the same kind of work as your work. I'm trying my hardest to enhance and order and form and fill the world. Colossians, this, as I prepared this, I, I struggled because I think this is clear in this text, but I struggled because there's not a whole lot of other texts on this subject that talk about subduing the earth or the creation mandate. But there is one text that I think affirms what I'm saying here, and then we'll do the next point. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Paul says this, and I really feel like in the back of his mind, he's got to have the creation mandate in his Thoughts. He says in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. For you are serving the Lord Christ. How could he make such a claim? This is Paul. Isn't it just pastors and missionaries who serve the Lord Christ? No. <laughs> whatever you do, do it heartily with all your heart. Not for men. Who cares what men think? Or women. Do it for the Lord because, in fact, you are serving the Lord Christ in your work. So work for Jesus when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you go to the library tomorrow, when you have to change another diaper tomorrow. Do it for Jesus Christ. Amen? That, that work is valuable. It's important. Culture-making, eternity-shaping work given by Almighty God and affirmed, I think, by His Apostle. All of that's number one, God's plan. Let's do number two, shall we? Number two, God's provision. Verses 29 and 30, God's provision. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I've given, I've given you every green plant, excuse me, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God's provision. God's plan includes God's provision. God will accomplish His plan for His world by feeding His creatures we can't do what we were made to do if we don't eat. Amen? Verse 29 tells us that God gave food to Adam and Eve. Verse 30 tells us that God gave food to all the other creatures of the earth. Humans and animals were created on the same day, day six, and they will eat at the same table. Both were initially given plants for food. All the vegetarians in the room are amening that inside. Meats would, though, be allowed later. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. After sin comes in the world, after the ark lands, Noah's coming off the ark. Chapter 9, verse 3 and verse 4. The Lord says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So meats are allowed, and Peter later affirms this in Acts. That all food, all meats are clean. Nothing is unclean. Before, back to chapter 1, before sin comes into the world, nothing with the breath of life will die. 
This, by the way, is perhaps the primary reason why Christians shouldn't accept any form of evolutionary theory. If death comes into the world through sin, then there can't be any death before sin. But if evolutionary theory is correct, then creatures are dying by the millions and billions before sin comes into the world. But in the beginning, man and beast would eat the plants. Killing animals for food wasn't part of God's original plan. It was clearly allowed later. Christian, you're free to eat however you want to eat. Please hear me. You're free to eat however you want to eat. You're like quietly a vegan because you don't want to be judged by your brother or sister. That's wrong. May it not be so in the church of Jesus Christ. You be a vegan. You be a vegetarian. You be whatever you want. You eat steak and nothing but steak and potatoes for the rest of your life. By the way, I'll join you in that. I'm just saying. That's kind of where I land. Um, there's freedom. There's freedom for us to eat how we think is best. We recognize that being an herbivore, carnivore, omnivore doesn't make anyone inherently more spiritual or holy or healthy. Whatever our diet is, though, according to this text, we learn that God gave us food. Paul says that some people later in the later times will require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. But then he says Christians should remember that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. So one way we can apply this and what Paul says in 1 Timothy is pause before our meals and give thanks to God for the food we're about to eat. Constant reminders of where our provision comes from are good for us and for those around us. Remembering that God gave us food That we didn't just get it on our own, that God gave it. God's plan comes with God's provision. Part of his plan is that we'll have the food we need to do the work he made us to do. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not be anxious about what you will eat. Can you imagine? I think in America we just gloss over this. But there are parts of the world where food is an issue. Thank you, Nick, for praying for the poor of our own city. There are places in this very city, in this very zip code, where people wonder what they're going to eat tonight. Jesus says, do not be anxious about what you will eat. Interesting. Do not be anxious about what you're going to eat. For The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says that God knows that we need food. Therefore, we should pursue his work in the world, knowing that he'll provide what we need as we pursue his plan. And we could, of course, multiply this out to everything you're you're in need of. God knows your needs, friends. He knows what you need. As you pursue him and his righteousness and his kingdom... You can trust that he will meet your needs. Of course, it's always wise to be thinking, is what I'm calling a need actually a need? God promises to meet our needs. And he has from the very beginning. That's number two, God's promise or God's provision. Number three, and finally, God's pronouncement. 
After God's plan and God's provision comes God's pronouncement in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Back through the text, and I won't read all of them, but you might remember after a lot of the days, God called what he made good, and it was good, and it was good. All the specific things God created were good. The details were good. But then, when God completes the whole, he steps back and says, it's very good. And this applies to everything God has created. It says plainly in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made. We often read 31 as if it only applies to Adam and Eve because that was the last thing he just made. But the picture is broader than that. He looks at everything he had just made and he calls all of it and all of its parts put together very good. The harmony and perfection and beauty of the heavens and earth reveal his goodness. And even God himself steps back and celebrates like a master artist. At the end of day six, God steps back from his canvas, takes a deep breath, excels and enjoys the beauty of what he made. If you ever complete a project or part of your work, and you take a deep breath, and you feel good. Have you ever done that? Three of you, good. It's a beautiful feeling. When I'm done mowing, the I do knowledge work, and so I've been told, you know, work with your head, rest with your hands. And so when I'm doing yard work and I complete the yard, I sometimes literally just sit down and just take it all in. I think that we're, we're reflecting the image as image bearers, what our creator did in this moment. He steps back and he enjoys the beauty of what he's made. He celebrates it. He declares it very good. Very good. Now, of course, the earth wouldn't remain in this very good condition. The first man and woman will disobey God in chapter 3. They believe the lies of the serpent. The whole earth will fall under the curse of sin. It will go from very good to very bad very quickly. God even says to Adam in chapter 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. Can you imagine? He goes from calling the whole thing blessed and beautiful and very good to cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of sin, all our efforts to cultivate the earth are now painful and toilsome and not as fun as they should be, and not as fun as they one day will be. What do I mean? Well, we also learn in chapter 3 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that seed of the woman has come in Jesus Christ, has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross through his resurrection, and started to bring in or usher or inaugurate a new heavens and new earth. This new creation is already starting to creep into the world. Where? Well, again, back to the local church. Anywhere the people of Christ are gathered and together living out His Word and celebrating His Son, the new creation is revealed. Peter Gentry says it this way, The new creation begins in the midst of the old. When God raised Jesus from the dead, He was the first man in the new creation. And anyone who is joined to Jesus Christ by faith is new creation. This happens first in the inner person and later at the resurrection in the outer person. So we as Christians and local churches are new creation and revealing the new creation to the world and to one another. 
This is why we're called to live lives that reveal the new creation that's within us. Ephesians 4, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Those who are in Christ start to looking more, start looking more and more like Christ, begin to reveal the kingdom of Christ in their lives and their churches, begin to show the old world what the new world will look like. Interestingly, in the first creation, God made the place and then the people who will live in it. But in the second world, He's forming and making His people and afterward will put them in the place for them to live. The problem is that we long for that new world. Amen? Amen. We long for that new world, but we don't deserve to live in it. We don't deserve to live in it. We haven't even followed God's rules in this old world. We prefer to cultivate the earth for our own glory, not God's glory. We're prone to exploit, not enhance the earth. We're we're quick. Please hear me because I know this is every one of us. We're quick to compete with instead of cooperate with fellow image bearers at work. We judge people based on what they do rather than what kind of person they are. Assuming that we're better if our job ranks higher in our culture's arbitrary ranking of professions. We want the new world, but we don't deserve it. And so God himself had to step into this old world to show us what imaging him is supposed to look like. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, died to cover our sin-soaked nature with his righteousness. He rose from the dead to defeat death and Satan once for all, to secure the resurrection of all who trust in him. Those who do trust in Him are united to Him in His death and resurrection and will live with Him in a new world forever where they'll be able to cultivate creation without toil and with unending joy. Can you imagine a day where work is no longer toilsome but fun? Those who are united to Christ will live in a world like that. But in the meantime, we must start looking like Him and revealing that world here and now. We must join Christ in being baptized into membership of a local church where we grow and serve and worship with other Jesus followers. Now, the creation mandate of Genesis 1 isn't the main point of the Bible. It isn't the main point of Genesis. But the reason I wanted to stop down on this is because understanding this text as it relates to our work will go a long way in helping you, I hope, tomorrow. Work is the thing we're going to do the most of until we die. Hate to break it to you. The thing you're going to spend the most hours on in your life is work. So, friends, let's take a biblical vision, the creation mandate, the cultural mandate, let's take that with us into our work. And what will happen as we start to push through the toilsome and troublesome aspects of our work, the world will start to see something different. They'll see people who don't grumble and complain all the time about their supervisor. They'll see someone who just does a good job. Even when no one's watching, they just do good work. They'll see people who aren't lazy, who don't just do the bare minimum, who aren't always looking at what time it is and ready to clock out, you know. They'll see people who go above and beyond and do really good work. And all of this, Titus 2 says, adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
we make the gospel look beautiful as we apply this to our work. I know that work is toilsome. It feels meaningless. But if what I've said is true, then our work is inherently meaningful because God created us and gave us this work to do on His behalf and with His help. He created us to join Him in cultivating His world. So while we still live in this world and wrestle with sin and futility of work, we must do so, we must wrestle while we wait expectantly for a new world and bring something of that new world down into our work and into our churches and into our lives. And in that, God will be honored. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would take your word and apply it to our lives. Pray that you would burn away the chaff, whatever is not from you, be removed from people's minds and hearts. That you would help us all to think carefully and biblically about what we're doing with our lives. That we wouldn't give in to the lies of the evil one, the despair, the sense of futility we experience at work. Help us to see inherent value in what we're doing in this world. Help us to be happy to join you in forming and filling the earth. May our work, whatever we do, may our work reveal something of your character and your glory. Maybe people would see something of Christ in how we do what we do. And we thank you for Christ who promises us a new world where work will never be toilsome and will only be fun. We pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Rescue your people. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.